Welcome to the Spirited Advocate Podcast, brought to you by the Distilled Spirits Council of the United States, the leading voice for the distilled spirits industry. Now your host, Chris Swanger. Welcome back to the Spirited Advocate Podcast, conversations with the people who make the spirits industry so much more than what's in the glass. I'm Chris Swanger, President and CEO of the Distilled Spirits Council of the United States. My guest on today's show was named by the Wine and Spirits Education Trust Future 50 as an influencer of the global drinks industry and is currently the head distiller at Rowan Co. Distillery in Dublin, Ireland. Here to discuss her start in the whiskey business, the role women have historically played in distilled spirits, and the new golden age of Irish whiskey is Laura Hemi. Are you new to the spirits industry or want to continue your professional development in the sector? Enroll in Discus Academy. Taught by experts in the spirits industry, Discus Academy offers fundamentals and advanced training in multiple domains, enabling you to deliver the skills necessary to take your career to the next level or run your business successfully. Discus Academy offers virtual courses to accommodate different learning styles and fit busy schedules. Take courses a la carte or as part of a certificate program. Visit DiscusAcademy.com to learn more. What's March all about? It's about St. Patrick's Day, and it's about Irish whiskey as well. Let me just start off with a couple of quick facts. In 2021, more than 5.9 million liter cases of Irish whiskey were sold in the United States. 1.3 billion in revenues generated for distillers in 2021. And since 2002, high-end premium Irish whiskey segment grew well over a thousand percent. And since 2002, Super premium segment grew 9,102%. I mean, that is that is amazing. The other exciting thing about March is it's Women's History Month. And the history of women distilling is, is what it's all about. I tell you that. Irish whiskey is soaring. And the U.S. consumer interest in Irish whiskey is at an all-time high. As Discus reports, As we lead up to St. Patrick's Day, we're really lucky to have Laura Hemi. Laura, welcome. And what are you sipping today? I understand it's been raining in Dublin today, right? It has. I've actually got an empty glass at the moment because I'm going back to work after this. But I'll be making myself an Irish coffee later for sure. No doubt about it. How are things in the Irish whiskey business and getting ready for St. Patrick's Day? Everything going strong? Clearly, it should be, right? Yeah, absolutely. Look, this is one of our, our busiest times of year, of course, uh, and super exciting in Dublin because the first St. Patrick's Day, we're going to have been open as a distillery. Very, very exciting. Lots of people in town, lots of visitors at the distillery. 
uh, and everybody really in a, in a mood to celebrate. So, No doubt about it, Laura. I mean, with the two-year reprieve, with the pandemic and so forth, it does feel, I mean, there's a lot of things going on in the world and it's, it's rather frightening, but it is a time to get together and celebrate and no doubt celebrate with Roe and Co. Irish whiskey as well. So tell me a little bit, how did you get into the business? Because you started in arts uh, before you became the master distiller for Roe and Co. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I have kind of snuck into a back door. I guess art school isn't isn't the sort of usual educational background for somebody running a whiskey distillery. So that's how I started out. I thought I was going to be a painter. Um, that's where my interest was. Um, but when I got to art school, I very quickly realised that two dimensions were quite restrictive. And my interest started to jump out of the canvas. So I got very interested in sound and light and aroma, actually, because they were all things that you could work with very sculpturally, but weren't necessarily tangible. And that really interested me. And that's what led me into whiskey, really. I had a, a stint as a sound engineer in my 20s and again, working with very sensory elements and then ended up going back to study Perry at Watt University in Edinburgh, which at the time was one of the only places in the world you could actually studying to be a distiller. I went back and trained in my early 30s and that's how I got started in the industry. But it's really through a lot of sensory and the creative side of putting together lots of disparate elements that when you put them together, make something gorgeous as a, as a whole. Pretty amazing. And you, you've been able to leverage your creative senses, right, into the magic of making a terrific Irish whiskey. For the master distiller, can you tell us What's your day-to-day like? I'm sure you have to manage a lot of different things. Every day is completely different. Obviously, we're an urban distillery, so we have a lot of visitors day-to-day as well, which is actually one of the highlights of my job. I get to meet visitors from all over the world on a day-to-day basis. There's always an energy about the distillery. I've got my team, and and usually in the mornings, I'll always meet with them first, and, and we'll talk through anything that we need to cover off in the day. They're all absolutely brilliant. And we'll try and get together as much as we can throughout the course of the day if there's specific challenges or specific production runs that we're trying to achieve or if we've got any interesting things that we've learned that we want to share with each other. So a lot of communication and a lot of sharing. Um, But actually, my job can involve everything from looking after a 1940s power station, which is where our distillery has been built. We're in a, a very unique building right in the middle of Dublin, the real landmark building. And, and I get to look after it as part of my job. Everything from that to the quality of the spirit coming off the stills, which is obviously absolutely critical. So it's really managing every part of the production process from the raw materials in to the spirit out. I'm also very involved in planning and preparing for all of our special innovation projects. We built the distillery to be able to play and experiment. And and actually, the the really fun part of my job is is getting to plan all of those and think of new ideas that will go on to become the Irish whiskies of the future. So it can be very varied. And we make a lot of different recipes in in the distillery, which is loads of fun. We're in the golden age of Irish whiskey, right? And what do you think about that? It's got to be really fun and exciting to be a part of this very precious time for Irish whiskey distillers. Yeah, and you described it really well there, Chris. It's, it, it is a really precious time because ultimately in the last seven years, we've, we've gone from having three distilleries really in Ireland to 40 and counting. 40, yeah. It's amazing. Brilliant. 
Uh, and there's there's even more in the pipeline. Obviously, some of those can the size of the distilleries can range from from quite small to to really large. There's a whole spectrum of of people um, with with their own um, interpretations of what that Irish whiskey is. And and from a consumer basis, that is enormously exciting. So we've got all of these in, incredible potential of these new distilleries that's going to come online over the next three, five, seven years. From an exciting perspective, from a flavor perspective, times are really exciting. Absolutely. And Laura, consumers are trading up. They're trading up across all categories, but in particularly Irish whiskey. Have you seen firsthand consumers willing to invest more in that great ultra premium bottle of Irish whiskey? Yeah, I, I absolutely think they are. And I think what's really um, unique about Irish whiskey and the, the culture and the heritage of, of whiskey making on this island is that uh, there's always been a really experimental nature to it. Um, so we have a, a unique set of rules governing how we make Irish whiskey, and which mean that we, we have a lot of, of flexibility and exciting ways in which we can create whiskey, which are actually very traditional. So there's a, a whole range of mash bills that we can experiment with as distillers. And we're also uh, able to use a, a wider variety of wood than, than scotch, for instance. We can, uh, we can use any type of, of wood and way beyond oak. So there's already lots of experiences and offer to uh, Irish whiskey consumers that, that, are, that are exciting by their nature. And, and people seem to be really energised by all of that in that we see all the questions we get asked uh, you know, about new products, what, what we're going to do next, what the experiments that we're laying down are going to deliver in, in the future, and people are really curious about the quality and, and how we actually make it. And, and that's critical because we, we have to maintain quality in the Irish whiskey industry to, to maintain that interest. And, and I think consumers are driving that by lifting the bar, and that's because they're curious about it. And that level of consumer interest is, is what's going to be, be really healthy for the, the category. No doubt. With all great respect to our friends with Scotch whiskey, correct me if I'm wrong, but for Irish whiskey, you can use any kind of wood for the barrel, right? And folks with Irish distilleries can use an E in the word whiskey or not. They have flexibility of trading in and out the letter E. Is that correct? Yeah, that's, that's absolutely correct. Um, it, it's equally valid with or without me. I bet it's fun with your creative juices flowing, using different maturations of wood just adds to a unique element for Irish whiskey that other whiskeys don't have that flexibility. So that must be fascinating and fun if you use a different type of wood because it'll have a, you know, in ultimate impact on the ultimate flavor, right? Yeah, and look, I think from a consumer perspective, consumers are really excited by by cusp finishing and cusp maturation in general. So we always get lots of in-depth questions about how we do it, down to you know really fine detail about how we prepare the casks, the sort of treatments, and, and the the flavors they will go on to deliver. So a real uh, curiosity about the science from the people that visit us too, which I think is is absolutely fantastic. But yeah, obviously as a distiller that opens a whole world of interesting flavors and the ability to create an incredible flavor inventory for the future. So that's essentially what our job is at the distillery. We are creating those lots of flavor. And again, those are what our blenders are going to be using to remix into new whiskey and new and exciting combinations. So I guess we're thinking about blending at, at every stage of the process here from you know, raw materials in to, for the cost selection and the spirit in between. 
Laura, there's a lot of history behind the distillery location in George Row. Could you just tell us a little bit about the history? And uh, great thanks to Diageo's leadership in investing in this idea. Could you just tell us a little bit about the history and the location on Thomas Street? Yeah, in terms of location, Thomas Street and James Street in Dublin 8, and that's in an area that we call the Liberties in Dublin, um, in, in the west of Dublin. Uh, the West City Centre. It, it's an area with a huge amount of history um, in both brewing and distilling. And, and traditionally in the Liberties, there would have been very many distilleries really up until 120 years ago. Um, now, George Rowe is really important and obviously where we have taken our name. He essentially owned a, a very large distillery close to the site of where our new distillery is today. And um, that was the Rowe Distillery. And at one point in the 1880s, 1890s, it was probably making 2 million gallons of, of spirit a year, which is a, a huge amount for the time. Uh, and just thinking about that now, I mean, it's, it's a, a massive capacity. If you see old drawings and, and maps of Thomas Street, you can see the, the scale of this distillery. It was, it was huge. It really spans the whole length of, of the north side of the streets. And that had really started as a family business. So um, it, it started in the, in the late 18th century. Peter Rowe, who was a relative of George's, had actually started a small distillery not far from where I live, actually, um, on the other side of the street. The business had grown and grown. George had inherited it, and, and George was really the one that grew it. And it was exporting all over the world and, and obviously for the US as well. So at one point, we think it was probably certainly the biggest distillery in what was then the, the empire, and that means probably the world at the time. Um, so you had George Rowe on one side of the street, and then the other side of the street, of course, you had the Guinness Brewery. So in terms of brewing and distilling, there's, there's not many streets that can sort of have this world-famous brewery on one side of the street and probably what was the, the largest distillery in the world on, on the other side. And there was a, a great rivalry between the Rose and, and the Guinnesses at the time, which is like interesting and, and, and all sorts of interesting. We, we weren't setting out to recreate an old distillery and that's not what we've done. We're, we're a totally contemporary distillery um, in interesting old building at the old power station that, that would have serviced both the brewery and the local area in the Liberties. The power station itself was built in the 1940s and decommissioned in 1996. It's huge, sort of cathedral dimensions, beautiful Art Deco design, but I was with lying unused on the brewery side. And Biagio had the, the great idea, I think, to repurpose the building as a distillery. So that's when I joined the project. And George Rowe is, is such an important character in the history of whiskey making in Ireland, but particularly in Dublin. He was really the person that put Dublin on, on the map um, in whiskey making. I, I guess we wanted to honour him, as well as learning from some of his mistakes and from some of the past of Irish whiskey at the time, because very sadly, the distillery and, and largely the Irish whiskey industry, due to a number of reasons, uh, including uh, a world war, prohibition, and everything that was going on in Ireland at the time, the, the whiskey industry collapsed in the 20s, and that included George Rose Distillery. So by 1923, they weren't producing anything else at the distillery. 1926, really, all, all operations had been wound up. So the, the industry that had once been so big and so great in, in the Liberties really shrunk down to nothing. And of course, you know, the rest of the history of Irish whiskey is widely documented. 
there were very few distilleries really until the, the early 90s. And, and then obviously in the last five, seven years, we've, we've had this real explosion of new distilleries and, and we're really undergoing this incredible renaissance in the cafe. But um, George Rowe was a key figure in, in Dublin whiskey. So we honour him by using him in, in the name of distillery, but we're not seeking to recreate what he would have made. We like to think that we're inspired by him and inspired by the innovative nature of the, the distillers in the local area. Absolutely. Bartenders play such an important role in bringing a brand to market. What is the one thing that needs to stick in the mind of a great bartender about Rowe & Co. Irish whiskey? What is that one thing that that bartender needs to know? So we designed the whiskey in conjunction with bartenders, according to a lot of the things that they were telling us they would like to see in a whiskey. So our master blender at the time worked very closely with bartenders in Dublin and a great set of bartenders that were still in touch with today. And they really tested and tested prototypes to ensure they delivered not just flavour, but that they carried through in, into a mixed drink. So we were looking for the texture, we were looking for character, we were looking for aroma, all very specifically but it had to work in a mixed drink as well as, as a sipping whiskey. So it's a real all-rounder of a whiskey. And in terms of, of how that works behind the bar, uh, all the bartenders told us that they, they preferred the higher ABV at 45% because it, it really helps the character of the whiskey carry through in a mixed drink. So that was very, very important. We don't chill filter our whiskey because we like the texture that the lack of chill filtration gives us. Again, it's, it's just keeping that creamy, buttery characteristic on the palate. And then, you know, obviously our, our cost policy, we, don't, we have this gorgeous, and if you're, you're using it for the first time, I think for me, it just, uh, the, the orchard fruits and, and light spice are just gorgeous on, on the first sniff. And you know, we're, we're looking for these lighter, fruiter characteristics that are very typical of the triple distilled whiskey. And that's, again, part of, of those prototypes that the bartenders were very keen on. So now we've, we've thought of every layer and, and structural detail in this whiskey to really work in a mixed drink and work from the perspective of the bartender, which is, is the strength of it, I think. And you know, for me too, I, I like to stick it. I like it. I like it in a glass with nothing else because it, it's been designed to work that way. And Laura, that's how I'm experiencing it. And it is creamy and buttery and over the top, delicious in every sense with the hint of the spices as well. So much fun and congratulations. It's Women's History Month, as I mentioned earlier. And when you look back at the history of distilling, it was actually considered a woman's job in the Industrial Revolution just to hang back in the kitchen, right? There is a robust history of women in distilling, in distributing spirits, but for some reason, they've been often left out of the conversation. When you were coming into the industry, did you experience those challenges? In large part, historically, you know, the industry has been very male dominated, and it's amazing of what you've been able to accomplish, particularly on the track of your career. Did you encounter challenges coming into the industry and did you anticipate that? If I've ever come across challenges, they, they've been where people have expected me to be something different and or they're surprised because they have an idea of what they think a, a distiller might look like or what they might 
sound like or what they might, what background they might have had. But those things are different for absolutely everybody and they have nothing to do with making great whiskey. But I think, look, we, we haven't always been great in the whiskey industry at communicating or being visible or showing ourselves as maybe as fully as we possibly can. And by that, I mean, you know, there's actually lots of women working in the whiskey industry and, and have been actually for, for many decades, but they might not always be as, as visible because you might not see them in adverts. You might not see them when you're walking around the distillery. They might not be in immediately visible roles. So I think it's part of the role of all of us working in the whiskey industry to make sure that we are visible because if you can see someone in a role, you can be, you can visualize yourself doing the same thing. I'd love to really encourage people to consider the, the spirits industry as a career path because it's, it's very rewarding, challenging and fun. And I would encourage you to just go for it. If that's what you're interested in and that's what you want to do and don't let anything stop you because it's actually a really fun world and my gender identity has nothing to do with with what I do day to day. Absolutely. Even among whiskey drinkers, nearly 30% are women, but it's viewed as kind of a manly drink. I don't know if it's appropriate for me to say that, but I know that's not the case because women are really gravitating to whiskey and Irish whiskey as well. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. Look, I mean, I'd, I'd say more of my female friends would enjoy whiskey than my male friends anyway. I'm very used to women enjoying whiskey and being around women that enjoy whiskey. Yagio has been way out in front with its leadership and female representation. Nearly half of the board of Diageo is made up of women. And for Roe & Co., it's led by a team of women in every aspect. Could you elaborate on that? And congratulations to Diageo and their leadership. You exemplify that in every sense. Could you just talk about that a little bit? Well, firstly, I'd say that it's completely um, accidental that we had so many amazing female leaders at the time that were part of the project. I mean, it, that that wasn't um, that wasn't on purpose at all. That's that's who was in the business, which is great. We, it was designed by talent. Yeah, exactly. So we were and still are incredibly lucky to have all of that support and absolutely agree. Diageo has been leading the way for a long time in creating the conditions for women to succeed in leadership roles, which is why that came about. And it's certainly why I wanted to join the business. And it's absolutely still why I'm, why I'm with the business. That, that doesn't necessarily mean that there's not a lot of work we have to do outside of Diageo and the external world and, and it's very easy being part of a global organization to look in, internally rather than to look externally like when i look externally i think actually we've, we've still got quite a bit to do in, in creating a more mixed whiskey industry operationally globally there's still lots of work to do there and there's still lots of work to do to ensure that we have or create the conditions for women to be in leadership roles in every organization because i think when we've had so many strong female leaders in roles that have been visible on this project, it's actually attracted more women to apply for roles. I've always had a very mixed operations team at the distillery, which is fantastic. We have 50 and um, 50 mixing men and women at the moment. Um, I've, I've led an all-women team in the distillery. So I think when you're visible and you show that a business has created conditions that mean that everybody can succeed, and that doesn't have to include women, it, it, it should include everybody, then I think you will end up with a much more diverse workforce because of it, which is absolutely fantastic and something that Diageo does very well because people will want to come and work for you. 
Yeah, and that makes the industry richer. And I'm not talking about financial richer, richer. The essence of diversity enables the industry to touch a broader base of consumers and customers and just make the industry much more enriched and so forth. So, okay, I think you've already hit on this, Laura. And I can tell you right now, as I sit here and sip this great whiskey, What's your favorite cocktail? Is it just straight up Rowan Co. Irish whiskey with the buttery, creamy taste? Or do you have a particular cocktail that you like to add into the mix? So this is a question I get asked a lot. And it's actually very difficult to answer because I really love playing around making my own cocktails at home. And I would never describe myself as a professional bartender. I work with experts that I let do that for me and they're all brilliant. An an Irish coffee would be a a total go-to and that's certainly what I'm going to be making myself tonight. That's my favourite because I can really, really nerd out on on coffee, which is one of my other loves as well outside of whiskey. I love an old-fashioned. That's something really nice and easy you can you can make it home with just a few ingredients and in our row fashions is I love that row fashions that's good it's a great one to try uh, at home or in a bar um and look at outside of that obviously this is designed as a sipping whiskey so i, I do like I, I do love to sip it with absolutely nothing else in it and enjoy the the whiskey for everything that it is and the aromatics in the glass but look, cocktails are a great way to explore Irish whiskey, and I would encourage everybody to, to give it a go and give it a try if you, if you haven't. Let me know how you get on with it and what you discover yourselves as well. You got it. And Laura, on behalf of the Distilled Spirits Council, great thanks. I mentioned to Laura earlier, I'm going to have the privilege to be in Dublin in June, and I am looking forward to, to meeting you in person, Laura, and visiting the distillery And really just count me in as an evangelist for everything that you do. Great thanks to Diageo and their leadership on the diversity front. And everybody, anybody who's listening, go get your Roe & Co. Irish whiskey. You will not be disappointed. And be sure to visit the distillery when you're in Dublin. Looking forward to it and great cheers to you, Laura. Thank you. Yeah, a lot of love has gone into making that whiskey, so delighted that you liked it. It's spectacular. I'd like to give a big thank you to Laura for joining us today to talk a bit about her experience as a distiller and the role Roe & Co. has played in the resurgence of the Irish whiskey category. I'd also like to thank you for listening to this episode of the Spirited Advocate podcast. Ask your bartender for a Rowan Co. whiskey and subscribe to the show so you'll never miss an episode. I'm Chris Swanger, and this has been the Spirited Advocate podcast, brought to you by the Distilled Spirits Council of the United States. <music>